Hello, and welcome to The World as We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Brad. And my name is Kiki, and as always, we are your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of... The Côte Côte d'Ivoire! So you just heard the national anthem of the Côte d'Ivoire. Um, let's start things off with some initial familiarity ratings and overall thoughts. Kiki? Well, as usual, I will I will p- pin my familiarity rating pretty low. I'm going to say one and a half. One and a half. I can't back that up. I don't even think I deserve that much. But it's a country I know little to nothing about. Alrighty, I'm going to give myself a uh, two. Out of uh, okay. <laughs> I know I'm I'm very optimistic, but give myself a two. I've actually met some some people from the Ivory Coast before. Wait, Ivory Coast? Don't you mean Cote d'Ivoire? Oh, that's right. Good, good catch, Tiki. Um, Cote d'Ivoire is actually is the preferred pronunciation for their country, um, and they've actually asked in you know, official diplomatic forums that they not be referred to as the Ivory Coast with that English translation. So good catch. Thanks for keeping me on my toes. I will always be here to keep you honest, Brad. <laughs> that's real hosting right there <laughs> um but like i said before i gave myself a two out of ten i didn't know a, um, a tremendous amount and i was excited having known some people from there before to get into the history and learn more about it all right so why don't we look at the snapchat of the country which i will say because it's my job <laughs> and we'll get into it right now <laughs> all right so the, the full title of the Cote d'Ivoire is the Republic of the Cote d'Ivoire. It's a West African country surrounded by Ghana, Burkina Faso, Mali, Guinea, and Liberia. The capital is Yamoussoukro, uh, but the largest city in the economic capital is Abidjan. The motto is Unity, Discipline, Work, and the language, as you might be able to tell from Cote d'Ivoire, is French. Vernacular languages are Bete, Daula, Baule, Abron. Agni, Sebaara, Senufu, and some others. Tried my best on those. Well, please let us know in the comments later how to pronounce those. <laughs> um, and we have some other notes on languages too that's pretty interesting. Uh, all African languages are represented in the Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, sorry, all the African languages represented in the Cote d'Ivoire belong to one of three subgroups in the Niger Congo family. I almost said familia because I got, <laughs> I got Italian on the brain. Uh, Kwa in the south. Mande in the northwest, and Gor in the northeast. A trade language known as Diula Tabusi and akin to the Mande Bambara is spoken throughout the country by Muslim traders, and the Fronçois de Moussa is a pidgin French widely spoken in Abidjan. The official language, though, is French. That's where you're going to find all your government documents uh, and other things are going to be that. All the language is spoken by the leaders and the government of the country of French. The ethnic groups in Cote d'Ivoire are 41% Akan, 70% Voltaque or Gur, 27% Diula or Maninka, 11% Kraus, and 3% others. The demonym, or what a person from the Cote d'Ivoire is called, is Ivorian or Ivoirian, depending on if you're doing more of an English or a French accent there. The religion uh, is another complicated issue, but Islam is followed by 
about two-fifths of the population found primarily in the Northwest and in Abidjan. One half the population is Christian, mostly Roman Catholic or Evangelical. Also present in the country are followers of the Harist faith, which is a syncretic religion indigenous to the Cote d'Ivoire, founded by a man named William Wade Harris during World War I. It claims an estimated 100,000 adherents to the country. So this one American guy, probably, right? Yeah, he's. I think he was an American missionary who went there during the First World War, and it combines like that evangelical Christian faith with like some tribal and some local religious. Um, yeah, customs. here on the World as We Know It podcast, we call that a TCM, a total Ooh. colonizer move. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so more things in our snapshot. The area is 322,483 kilometers squared, or squared kilometers, I guess we could also say. We could also say that, yes. <laughs> yeah. And the population is 23,740,424. That's a 2018 estimate. The currency is the West African CFA franc. Politics follow a unitary presidential republic with a parliament. The president is Alassane Uotera. The Vice President Daniel Kablan Duncan, that was an easy one to say. Yep. <laughs> uh, Prime Minister Amandu Kon Kulalibi. Uh, and the national anthem, which you heard, is called Song of Abidjan. And I guess that's that's it for what I have on our Snapchat. Brad, why don't you just take us back to antiquity? Yeah, um, well, Snapchat, as you know, is an app. That was the snapshot of Cote d'Ivoire. Hey! <laughs> but... <laughs> got me good i got apps on the brain but why don't you tell us about the history of the Cote d'Ivoire gladly so um we're gonna get into now the origins and the historical timeline for the Cote d'Ivoire um and let's start off with a little bit of an overview um so the beginning point is a little hard to ascertain um the history of course stretches back into antiquity as I'll... most do it seems <laughs> that seems to be a recurring theme on this podcast this is a recurring <laughs> theme yes places places are old <laughs> you heard it here first um <laughs> But accurate historical dating of when that first human settlement uh, is in the Cote d'Ivoire is pretty much impossible. Um, scientists say that because of the climate there is so humid, um, it leads to the difficult preservation of like artifacts and remains, so they can't accurately carbon date skeletons and stuff. But I've broken down the historical timeline nonetheless into some distinct periods, and those are going to be like the earliest records we have, like early Roman Empire... Um, early North African trading routes kind of stuff. Then we get to the Sudanic empires, the empires of like Ghana and Mali, then the pre-colonial empires. Um, then we get into French West Africa, when the French and the Portuguese show up in West Africa, um, how they gained independence in the 20th century. Then we get into the early 2000s and the two Ivorian civil wars, and then we'll talk about present day. So the earliest history we have um, you have the North African Berber traders that conducted some Trans-Saharan trade routes um, in the early 8th to 5th century BC, this is the early Roman times, and they were trading salt, they were transporting enslaved peoples, and they also wanted gold and other goods like ivory from West Africa. Um, and some important uh, terminals for those trades like Dijin, Gao, and Timbuktu, those grew into major commercial centers around which um, the later Great Sudanic Empires developed. Uh, by controlling this trade routes with their powerful military forces, these empires were able to dominate the neighboring states, so that's why they're so they're prominent in the history. Um, these empires also became centers of Islamic learning when Islam, through those trade routes, reached West Africa. Um, uh, as I said, Islam had been introduced to, West, to Western Sudan by Arab traders um, from the North African trade routes, 
and it spread very rapidly after the conversion of important rulers in these um, dynasties. Um, and from around, the, from around the time of the 11th century, um, those rulers of the Semitic empires had embraced Islam and brought it into what we now consider to be the Cote d'Ivoire. The Sudanic empires begin with Ghana, which is the earliest, and that flourished in present-day eastern Mauritania, Mauritania um, from the 4th to the 13th century. And at the peak of its power um, in the 11th century, its realms extended as far um, from the Atlantic Ocean to Timbuktu. Um, after the decline of the Ghanaian Empire, the Mali Empire grew into a powerful Muslim state, which reached its apogee in the early part of the 14th century. Um, the territory of the Mali Empire in the Cote d'Ivoire was limited to the northwest corner around Odiyene, um, and its slow decline started at the end of the 14th century because of internal discord and revolts by vassal states, one of which, Songhai, flourished as an empire between the 14th and the 16th centuries. Songhai, however, was also weakened by internal discord, which led to factional warfare. This discord spurred most of the migrations of people southward toward the forest belt. Um, a, a quick side note here, the landscape of the Cote d'Ivoire is kind of striated, in which there is a coastline and an in kind of a, a coastal region. Then there's a forest belt. In the northwest, there is um, savannas. And then there's a, there's a mountain range in the north as well. That's cool diversity. It is. It's, it's really neat. Three stripes. Kind of like the flag. We'll talk about that later. Hey! <laughs> um, the dense rainforest covering the southern half of the country created barriers to large-scale political organizations, um, as we're seeing in the, in the, in the north. Um, so leading from the Sudanic empires, we have some pre-colonial empires. Um, and of those, five important states flourished in the present-day Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, in this still pre-European involvement era, you have the Muslim Kong Empire was established by the Juula in the early 18th century in the north-central region inhabited by the Sino-Ufu, who had earlier fled Islamization under the Mali Empire. Although Kong became a prosperous center of agriculture, trade, and crafts, ethnic diversity and religious discord gradually weakened the kingdom. Uh, the city of Kong was destroyed in 1895 by Samori Tore. The second kingdom in this era is the Abron Kingdom of Jaman, and that was established in the 17th century by, the, by an Akan group, the Abron, who had fled the developing Asante Confederation in what is now present-day Ghana. From their settlement south of Bondo, Bondoko, the Abron gradually extended their hege hegemony over the Juula in Bondoku, who were recent immigrants from the market city of Beko. The Bondoko developed into a major center of commerce in Islam. The kingdom's, in fact, Quranic scholars, they attracted students from all over parts of West Africa. In the mid-18th century in east-central Ivory Coast, other Akan groups fleeing uh, the Asante from Ghana established uh, a Baole kingdom at, at Sakaso and two Agni kingdoms, uh, Indinie and, Sa and Sanwi. The Baole, like the Asante, elaborated a highly centralized political and administrative structure under three successive rulers, but it finally split into smaller chiefdoms. Despite, their, despite the breakup of this kingdom, the Baole strongly resisted French subjugation later. Um, and uh, as here to note, a lot of these... Uh, the names of these kingdoms are shown in kind of the vernacular languages that still show up in the Cote d'Ivoire. Oh, that's cool. Um, so the descendants of these rulers of the Agni kingdoms tried to retain their separate identity, 
um, after the Cote d'Ivoire's independence in the 20th century, and in fact as late as 1969, the Sanwi of Krinjabo attempted to break away from the Cote d'Ivoire and form an independent kingdom. So those um, identities, they lasted a long time. Uh, but now we get into you know, European involvement and the formation of French West Africa. In the 15th century, the first Europeans to explore the West African coast were the Portuguese, in fact. Other European sea powers soon followed, and they established trade routes with many of the coastal peoples of West Africa. At first, that trade included gold, ivory, and pepper, but with the establishment of the American colonies in the 16th century, that spurred a demand for enslaved peoples, which led to the kidnap and enslavement of peoples from the West African coastal regions. Um, this is known as the African slave trade, obviously. Um, local ru ru rulers, under treaties with the Europeans, procured goods and enslaved peoples from inhabitants of the interior. Um, by the end of the 15th century, commercial contacts with Europe had spawned strong European influences, which permeated areas northward from the West African coast. The Côte d'Ivoire, like the rest of West Africa, was subject to these influences, but the absence of sheltered harbors along its coastline prevented the Europeans from actually establishing a permanent trading post, which was fortuitous, because the established slave trade there um, went on to have actually little effect on the peoples living in the Côte d'Ivoire. Um, a profitable trade, however, in ivory um, gave the area its name, and that was carried out during the 17th century, mostly. However, it brought about such a decline in elephant population numbers that the trade itself had virtually died out by the beginning of the 18th century. So within one century's time, they had decimated the elephant population. The earliest recorded French voyage to West Africa took place in 1483. The first West African French settlement is named Saint-Louis, and it was established in mid-17th century in Senegal. A French mission was established in 1687 at... Assini, near the Gold Coast, which is now called Ghana, um, near the border there, and it became the first European outpost in the area. Assini's survival was precarious, however, and only in the mid-19th century did the French establish, them firm, establish themselves firmly in the Côte d'Ivoire. In the 18th century, the country was invaded by two related Akan groups, the Agni, which occupied the southeast, and the Baule, which who settled in the central section. In 1843 to 1844, the French admiral, I'm sorry to this guy, <laughs> Boat Williamess, Kiki, any help? Um, no, no help I can offer. Uh, if you are a French speaker, it looks like Buet Williamess. That guy. I do not intend to offend. <laughs> I have Just no ear trying for my French. Hardest. I'm sorry, folks. He signed treaties with those kings um, of the Grand Bassam region and the, and the Assini. Um, placing their territories under an official French protectorate. Um, French explorers, missionaries, trading companies, and soldiers gradually extended this area under French control inland from that lagoon region along the coast. However, pacification was not accomplished until 1915. The defeat of the, of the French in the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 and the subsequent annexation by Germany of the French province of Alsace-Lorraine, that causes some problems, spoiler alert, caused the French government to abandon its <laughs> colonial ambitions and withdraw its military garrisons from its French West African trading posts, leaving them in care of resident merchants. The trading post at Grand Bassam and in, in the, the Côte d'Ivoire... The trading post, <laughs> also known as a post, at Grand Bassam and the Côte d'Ivoire was left in the care of a shipper from Marseille, Arthur Verdier, Verdier, 
who in 1878 was named resident of the establishment of the Côte d'Ivoire. In 1887, Lieutenant Louis-Gustave Binger, Binger, I'll call it Binger. Binger began a two-year journey that traversed parts of the Côte d'Ivoire's interior. At the end of that journey, he had concluded four treaties establishing those aforementioned French protectorates in the Côte d'Ivoire. Um, France named Marcel Trèche La Plaine, titular governor of the territory. And in 1893, the Côte d'Ivoire was made a French colony with then Captain Binger as he was appointed governor, the first governor. You should listen to our other podcast, Brad Pronounces French Names. It's sure to be a hit. That podcast wouldn't make it past episode one, Kiki, because of me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So now we have French rule as a colony officially established. Um, from 1903 to 1936, we have um, cash crop plantations were developed. Um, those cash crops included coffee, um, cacao, which is a major... Uh, Still a major com- export there. Yeah, yeah, really major now. It's a component of chocolate. Um, it's probably like the thing that makes chocolate chocolate, I would say. I, I'm hedging a bet that you're correct. <laughs> um, in 1904, the Côte d'Ivoire became part of the French Federation of West Africa. Um by 1908, military occupation of the French was completed there. However, in 1910, the Abe people in the southern part of the country staged a rebellion. Um, another rebellion was caused in 1914 to 1918, when France's attempt to conscript indigenous peoples for World War I caused a rebellion. It's very believable. Yeah. Uh, in 1934, parts of the French colony of the Upper Volta, which is present-day Burkina Faso, those were added to the Côte d'Ivoire. Um, however, in World War II, um, the Vichy regime, regime that remained in control until 1943 in France, um, Charles de Gaulle's provisional government assumed control of all of West French Africa. Sounds familiar to our Lao episode. It does. Um, there was a conference called the Brazzaville Conference in 1944, and the first constituent assembly of the Fourth Republic in 1946, after the war, um, France recognized and gave gratitude to African loyalty during World War II, and this led to far-reaching governmental reforms considering West um, French Africa, French West Africa. Um, French citizenship was granted to all African quote-unquote subjects, and the right right to organize politically was recognized, um, and then various forms of forced labor were abolished. This is a turning point as far as recognition, um, and really the precursor to independence later on. Um, so after this turning point in relations with France, um, there was the 1956 Overseas Reform Act, um, and that transferred a number of powers from Paris, or Paris, I know that one, um, <laughs> to the elected territorial governments in French West Africa, and it also removed um, inequalities of voting. You were going to say something, Kiki? No, I was just going to say the Overseas Reform Act is also called Le Carre. I wasn't even going to touch it. It's okay, I said it pretty well, I think. Um so some more French coming in. Um, 1944, the Syndicat Agricole Africain, the SAA. This was formed by people who will, in the future, come to be very, very prominent in Côte d'Ivoire politics, chiefly Felix Houphoué Boney. That's ominous. Very ominous. <laughs> Boney gets the thunder. That wasn't, that wasn't an effect we did. That was nature, everyone. Uh, in 1946, the Côte d'Ivoire and the Upper Volta separated. Um, the Upper Volta, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, 
becomes present-day Burkina Faso. In 1958, the Cote d'Ivoire began internal self-government as a republic within the French community. And then in 1959, Félix Houphouët-Boni becomes the first prime minister. In December of 1958, the Cote d'Ivoire became an autonomous republic within the French community, and as a result of a referendum that brought community status to all members of, those, of an old federation of French West Africa, except Guinea, they voted against association. In July of 1960, France agreed to the Cote d'Ivoire becoming fully independent, and the Cote d'Ivoire recognized that independence and became independent on August 7, 1960. And they, when they permitted their membership in that aforementioned West African community to lapse. It established a commercial city, Abidjan, as its first capital. In 1963, an attempted military coup was suppressed, and this will be a bit of a trend in the late 20th century. Um, as, uh, in 1973, 1980, also in those years, there were military coups that were being suppressed. Um, in 1979, Cote d'Ivoire officially became the world's leading producer of cocoa. Um, in 1981, an agricultural recession greatly impacted the economy. The national debt grew a lot. Um, also in that year, the capital moved from Abidjan to Yamasucro. Uh, in 1987, cocoa prices fell internationally by 50%, and this was a huge impact on Cote d'Ivoire's economy. In 1989... A little bit of a cultural touchstone here. The world's largest Catholic basilica was built at Yamasukro. And I think it's still the, the l- largest church in the world. I, That's I, super I, cool. I believe it is. Uh, in 1990, a strike launched by civil servants um, and students um, protested international institutional corruption in the Cote d'Ivoire. And in that same year, because of those um, strikes, opposition parties were finally legalized. In 1990, Hufwet Boni won the first multi-party presidential election, recognizing also opposition parties in that um, election. Um, a note here politically, Houphouët Boni was considerably more conservative than most African leaders of the post-colonial period of those newly independent West African states. He maintained really close ties with the West. Um, he rejected you know, leftist, anti-Western stances um, that many leaders of his time held. And this actually contributed to his country's economic and political stability in the late um, late 20th century. Um, also in 1990, this is a very, very busy year, a new constitution was introduced. So this takes us into um, the end of the 20th century and the early um, 2000s. Um, a lot is going to start happening as far as conflict, political unrest, and the jostling for, you know, um, preeminence in the Cote d'Ivoire. Um, in 1993, President Houphouët Boni, who was a main um, mainstay as far as independence and a major icon, he dies, and Henri Conan Bede becomes president. However, in 1995, he's re-elected in a journal election that was boycotted by all the other opposition parties. Um, in 1995, furthermore, he's jailed. Um, he jailed several hundred opposition supporters following the elections. And in 1999, um, President Bede is overthrown by a military coup led by General Robert Guyuai, um, and Badif flees to France. And after um, Badif flees to France, Alassane Ouattara, um, he leaves the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, to run for the presidency in the year 2000. Um, opposition declared him to be a national of Burkina Faso, not the Cote d'Ivoire. This will be a sticking point later. 
1999, a law was passed by the government which required both presidents, both parents of a presidential candidate to be bon- born in the Cote d'Ivoire, um, kind of hinting uh, at that that law was passed to disqualify Alassane Ouattara and soldiers go on a rampage and later that year um, with gunshots and looting and the Abidjan uh, and they're protesting wages and more um, benefits for working for the military so this starts the early 2000s in the early 2000s General Robert Guyuai is um, he announces a suspension of the country's foreign debt payments which is a really bold move um, he also dissolves the interim government um, voters then adopt a new constitution. So a lot's going on in this um, this first year of the 2000s. Um, he then goes on to declare himself winner in the presidential elections. And he dissolves the electoral commission that was going to show his main opponent to be in the lead of that election. Bold so he's, so he's, he's kind of just like, he's grabbing power. Yeah. Um, people then revolt. And Laurent Gbagbo? Uh, I think it's pronounced Laurent. Laurent? I know that because of Twilight. Uh, I don't know much about the last name. I would call it Gadogbo, but... So, Laurent? Laurent? Laurent. So, Twilight... Like Yves Saint Laurent is a designer. This guy's proclaimed president <laughs> in the year 2000. <laughs> Opposition leader Alassane Ouattara, who was excluded from running for president, he calls for a new election. Um, this leads to fighting breaking out between... Um, <laughs> Laurent's um, Christian supporters and the uh, followers of Ouattara, who are primarily of the Islamic faith, um, dozens are killed. Ouattara has actually gone to ex- exile in France. Um, the following year, there's a coup attempt against the president, which fails. Um, and in 2001, thousands of people flee to neighboring Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, Ghana, and Niger following attacks on foreigners. Um, those foreigners were accused of being involved in the coup attempt. And this leads into the first Ivoirian civil war, which there are two in the 2000s. And the first Ivoirian civil war was a conflict that began in 2002. Uh, most, of the con- most of the fighting itself had ended by late 2004. But, the con- but following this civil war, the country remained split into two, with a rebel-held Muslim-controlled north and a government-held Christian south. Um, his hostility increased and raids on foreign troops and civilians rose. As of 2006, the region was tense, and many said that the UN and the French military failed to calm the civil war when they began um, intervening in 2004. Troops, many of whom originated from the north of the country, um, they mutinied in the early hours of 2002 in September, and that's what started the rule of the rule fighting. Um, and on that first night of the uprising, the former president, Robert Guyuai, was he was killed. Um, an interesting note for this first civil war is that um, the Cote d'Ivoire national football team was credited with helping to secure a temporary truce when it qualified for the 2006 FIFA World Cup. And warring parties um, declared a ceasefire to watch them play soccer. That's kind of nice. And oh, I absolutely love this point. <laughs> um, uh, the United Nations operation in the Cote d'Ivoire began after the Civil War calmed. Um, but as was mentioned, the peacekeepers, um, they faced a complicated situation. They were outnumbered by both civilians and rebels. A tentative peace agreement was to end that conflict was signed on March 4th, 2007. Um, so there was a little bit of um, uncertainty following that peace agreement. The two split countries um, of the Cote, in the, within the Cote d'Ivoire tried to reconcile you know, some economic differences. And this leads to an Ivorian crisis. 
um, in 2010-2011, um, which began after um, Bahrain. <laughs> Laurent? I just can't say Laurent. I'm sorry. You just said it. You can do it. You just <laughs> so believe. Laurent. Um, he was, he's been the president of the Ivory Coast since 2000, and he was proclaimed the winner of the Ivorian election in 2010, uh, which was the first election in 10 years because of the First Civil War. The opposition candidate, Alassane Ouattara, and a number of countries, organizations, and leaders worldwide, um, they claimed that Ouattara had won that election. Um, and after months of attempted negotiation and sporadic violence, the crisis entered a decisive stage as Watara's forces began a military offensive in which they quickly gained control of most of the country. They besieged key targets in Abidjan, um, which was the country's largest city on the coast. Um, international organizations reported uh, num numerous human rights violations during this crisis. The UN had to undertake its own military action with a stated objective to protect their peacekeepers as well as civilians. Um, a significant step to bring an end to the crisis occurred on April 11, 2011, with the capture and the arrest of Gabagbo, that's Laurent, Laurent <laughs> by pro-Watara uh, forces, and they were, they were backed by French forces at this point, too. Following this crisis leads into the Second Ivorian Civil War, a very, very short civil war as far as conflicts go. Um, this broke out in March 2011, with the crisis in the Ivory Coast escalated into full-scale military conflict. Forces loyal to President Bagbo and supporters of the internationally recognized president-elect Alassane Ouattara. This leads to a conflict which has casualties nearing 3,000, although French forces arrest Bagbo at his residence in April 11th of 2011, so only a month-long civil war. So this kind of wraps, this is the, the last big formative moment in the history of the Côte d'Ivoire. After this civil war, they reach some stability. Um, in fact, in the news recently, the biggest things that have been happening in the Côte d'Ivoire are Emmanuel Macron's visit from France. He's trying to build up a better rapport with former uh, um, French West African nations. Um, there was major flooding in 2017 in Abidjan. And there's actually some reported economic growth going on there. They're on the resurgence as far as moving away from um, just an agricultural nation into more developed and I so I think that is going to end our very lengthy discussion of this historical timeline and after this first break we're going to take things off back to Kiki in the Flag Corner. Can't wait! Welcome back from the break, everybody. As is tradition, we're going to kick things back off with a trip to Kiki in the flag corner. My favorite segment. So the Ivarian flag is orange, white, and red in a vertical tricolor. So it's three bands with orange is the closest to the flagpole, then white, then green. The orange signifies the rich and generous earth, um, the struggle of the Ivarian people, and the blood of young people in the struggle for emancipation. The white is the color of peace uh, and the peace of, of being right. And green is for hope for others, but especially for the Ivarian people and the certainty of a better future. I'm reading this description from the description of the flag by Minister of State Jean de la Fosse and the 1959 Legislative Assembly when they adopted this new flag. 
Uh, they've also said in 1960 when they were drafting their constitution that the orange stripe rep- expresses the splendor of national blossoming while also serving as a reminder of the northern savannas. The white stripe glorifies peace and purity in the union of hearts in the pledge of their success. And the green stripe represents the hope for the future, recalls the luxuriant virgin forest of the Ivory Coast. That's what it says. I'm not saying not Cote d'Ivoire, <laughs> you know, and the first great source of natural national prosperity. And the vertical alignment of the stripes symbolizes the dynamic youth which heads for the future under the national motto, Union, Discipline, and Work. Wow, I like that. It's very nice, and it's very pleasant to look at. Also, like, this is the first time we've read someone from that country actually describing their flag and not just, like, what it means. Yeah, it's not just bullet pointed. what on paper it says. It's, it's why it is that way. And I think when people have that personal connection to the flag and understand that, it makes it more special. So I definitely spoke for too long in the historical timeline, so I'm going to segue right back to Kiki. and She's going to talk about, I think, a book she's read about the Cote d'Ivoire. Right. So one thing I'm going to try to do on this podcast more, um, because I've been putting the books I've been reading at the end of the podcast, but I feel like it'd be good to channel that book reading energy into reading books by authors from countries that we're covering that week or about the countries that we're covering. So the book I read for the Cote d'Ivoire is called The Bitter Side of Sweet, It is by an author who actually went to the same university that Brad and I attend now. Her name is Tara Sullivan. Um, And it's a very narrative story about a young man and his little brother who work on a cacao farm. I can't say work because they're not being paid, really. And they meet a young woman who is brought there to work also. Um, I'm not going to give anything away in the book, but they escape and then, well, I just gave it away. (laughs) More happens. Far more happens than just escaping. Uh, But the book actually brings to light the very real issue of child labor um, and unpaid labor and slave labor on cacao farms. And I will take this moment to say, too, if you're buying chocolate, you love chocolate like I do, uh, sourcing it from sustainable and ethical sources is something that I prioritize in my chocolate buying now after reading this. You know, Four days. <laughs> Four days. That's something that I think is increasingly important to me to understand the plight of these people and what it's like. Uh, again, it's called The Bitter Side of Sweet by Tara Sullivan. I recommend it. If you want to talk to me about it more, please engage with me on Twitter or on our blog. I love talking books. She does. Uh-huh. Can't confirm. Yeah. What did you get from for this week, Brad, about Go to Bar? So I want to get into a bit of a personal anecdote. Um, when I played soccer in high school, my junior year, I was a central defender. And the defenders to my left and my right were twin brothers from the Cote d'Ivoire, Franck and Jan. And so the first time I ever really learned about this country was from people who were from there. And I remember them, you know, in the midst of uh, tough soccer games, yelling French you don't learn in kindergarten over the top of my head at each other. So I felt very, like, you know, um, very fraternal with these guys. And as I was excited to learn more about the Cote d'Ivoire, and I've also, you know, watched a lot of you know, soccer from the Cote d'Ivoire being played. I know that they've won the African Cup of Nations, their national team has in 1992 and 2015. They have some famous players on the world stage. I mean, Didier Drogba and Yaya Torre. They're, they're I mean, they were, um, you know, preeminent famous soccer players. Um, they've made three consecutive World Cup appearances. Um, so, like, soccer and the Cote d'Ivoire are, are um, inseparable for me, which is really interesting that I have kind of a connection there. And that was fun to look up as far as, you know, their sports are concerned. Um, and I know Kiki loves the Olympics, so um, she's going to talk to you about some Olympic sports yeah, achievements I there. I very love the Olympics. I'm actually, I'll probably hold back a tear when I say this, just because it's something that I 
just effing love a lot. Um, <laughs> but the only Olympic gold ever won by the Cote d'Ivoire was in Taekwondo in Rio in 2016, so the most re- most recent Summer Olympics, by a Cheik Salah Sisa. Sisa, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say was that the tourism scene in the Cote d'Ivoire, to what I understand, is booming. It's a relatively safe place. It's at least safer than it used to be. They've got super gorgeous beaches. Um, Brad, you were telling me about a sand bank. Um, with atolls and small islands. Yeah, so they have this this huge sandbar right off the coast that almost goes for the entire the entire length of the coast. And between that sandbar and the coast, there's all these like beautiful lagoons, these gold sand beaches. Uh, it's, apparently, it's a, it's a booming tourist scene there. So I feel like that'd be a cool place to consider if you want to go to West Africa for any reason. Uh, and it's, I mean, it kind of looks like they're on the up and up in terms of their economy and safety and really becoming a more stable country based on even like the controversies there in the past 20 years. One thing I want to talk about as far as talking about like geography and stuff, um, there's Mount Nimba. Um, it's their tallest mountain. It rises above the surrounding savanna where the Cote d'Ivoire meets Guinea and Liberia. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it's one of many. I think there's three or four um, national parks in the Cote d'Ivoire which are um, uh, not UNESCO World Heritage Sites, but the other one. They're protected. They're recognized UNESCO sites. Um, and Mount Nimba is covered by dense forests. It harbors a rich variety of flora and fauna. Um, chimpanzees live there. I know in the Cote d'Ivoire there's also like elephants and lions. I will tell you, Rod, I am terrified of chimps. I will not go to places where there are chimps. You're terrified of chimps? Yeah, I don't trust them. A lot of people have been killed by chimps. Duly noted, Kiki. I'll remember that for later. <laughs> um, another aspect of culture is music. And in Ivorian culture, um, there's a, tr- tr- a strong tradition of uh, griots who use music to help tell historical stories. Um, the Sanufo people use marimbas um, and tuned iron gongs, among other instruments, to make their music. And there's also music that combines both you know, African and European traditions. Um, one of the most famous traditions from the Cote d'Ivoire is Alpha Blondi. And he is Alpha Blondie was another one of my nicknames in high school. That is a callback to the Boggy Peak nickname <laughs> from the Antigua and Barbuda episode for you, for you faithful listeners. Um, and Alpha Blondie, shout out to Kiki, is strongly influenced by reggae. Uh, and the Cote d'Ivoire's most internationally known musician um, uses that kind of blend of West African reggae sounds. And um, I listened to some of his music recently. It's uh, it's really nice. I like it a lot. Kiki, anything else to add for the culture of discussion? You know, I think we got to wrap it up, take our final break, and then we'll be back for final thoughts. All right, we'll come back from final thoughts and do our post-familiarity ratings and our current events. See you then. Welcome back to the world as we know it. We're going to get into final thoughts and familiarity ratings after our research. Kiki? So I think after listening to your really comprehensive and good narrative of the Ivorian history, I put myself at like a oh, like a four. Maybe four and a half, Brad. Four and a half, wow. I feel like I really did learn a lot this episode. And frankly, that book, The Bitter Side of Sweet, really did give a lot of good insight into modern uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and help me learn some of the names and give some more familiarity to what it's like to live there. 
uh, even though it was like a pretty short read, um, it was just a really good narrative. So I do feel more comfortable after doing the research and listening to your your stuff this week, Brad. Well, thanks. Um, as the host, you know, sh- shouldering the burden of like a, a full historical timeline to read a lot. So I, I definitely have to up my familiar- familiarity rating from a two, um, maybe even up to a five or a 5.5. I thought not only am I more comfortable with the formation of the country and what they've people have been through and the history, but also you know, culture and arts and music and what they're going through now. And I, yeah, feel more comfortable with it. Uh, so to talk about my final thoughts, uh, I was I was talking about this a little bit before recording, but I really think it needs to be like permanent on on this podcast. Is that today I got charged by a female deer, and it was frankly terrifying. And I was I was with my dog Gertie, and we were walking by the turtle pond, and there's this little wooded area, and. Uh, my dog paused, and then I paused, I looked up, there was a deer, and usually when there's deer, they just run away from us, but then Gertie started barking, um, she would never hurt anything, she's just, you know, doing dog stuff, <laughs> and then the deer starts walking towards us, and then the do- deer starts running towards us, and Gertie's not backing down, <laughs> and um, so we ran around the corner, and we kind of lost it, I think it was just satisfied to get, make sure we were getting out of its way. Um, but I've been still kind of calming down from that because that was a huge adrenaline rush and it was honestly terrifying. Um, not as scary as chimpanzees though. Yeah, not as scary as ch- if a chimpanzee was, was charging at me, uh, frankly, I, I feel like that would be the end of my life. They're <laughs> fast. They'll rip your face off. They break your bones and they're extremely strong and heavy. People underestimate chimpanzees all the time, Brad. I'm not kidding about this. Oh dear. The people, people think that they're going to be good pets, but they're not. They're wild animals, and they should be in jungles where they belong with their families that they love. So I think Animal Encounters has been your soapbox for the week. Um, also, I want to talk about the other book I read, Not the Bitter Please Side do. of Sweet. Uh, it was a book about Queen Victoria. It was called Victoria the Queen, an Intimate Biography by Julia Baird. Uh, it was also a very good read. I also, if you remember, read that book about Queen Elizabeth, and I felt that was like a little bit dry. So you're going out of monarchical order? Well, I mean, it's, I skipped a few. I'm going for interesting ladies. Victoria had the longest reign uh, of all English queens until the current Queen Elizabeth II. And I've always been curious about her life because she had a whole epoch named after her. Epic, epoch, uh. Epoch, yeah. But, man, she really did love F and her cousin. She had many children with him. And I don't know, I get like... I. From reading this book, like, I did feel... That was not the takeaway I thought I was going to hear. Man, she really loved her cousin, F and her cousin. (laughs) But, uh, super interesting life. Because, like, every time I think about Queen Victoria now, or, like, before, I would just think Grieving Widow. When I went to London, there's the Victoria and Albert Museum. There's the Albert Memorial in Hyde Park. There is Grieving Widow stuff everywhere. But no one ever really thinks about Victoria the Hellcat. So that's what I took away from this book. What about you, Brad? My current events for the week are pretty World Cup-centric. I've, been, I've watched every game so far. Every every team has played at least once. Um, so every te- uh, Russia played their second game today. So every team's played once. And there's been, you know, there have been upsets. There's been stirring goals. There's been teary moments as fans have, you know, sung the national anthem with their team. One moment that I particularly love is... Um, Mexican and Colombian supporters. They lift up an Egyptian fan who's in a wheelchair so he can 
see over the crowd and see his team play and it's just a beautiful That's moment very nice. i don't care about sports at all no i love I, the world Cup. i cry a lot when i think about moments like um there's just nothing like seeing someone give their all for their country uh it's just different than club than club soccer and I, i'm loving every moment of it and i can't wait to see more so I think that's going to end our discussion of the Cote d'Ivoire. And Kiki, where can we find, uh, where can listeners find the research and the materials about our episodes? Well, Brad, you, as well as our listeners, can find our, our material on the World As We Know It podcast at wordpress.com. Uh, we're updating that as we speak so that it matches our material because, as you probably now know, we're on iTunes. We've gone live. It's official. Uh, so we're an official podcast now. You can also find us on Twitter at, at the World Podcast uh, and interact with us daily there. Uh, please rate and subscribe. If you send us a review, we will uh, tell you how hot you are. We do have one message for one P-Town boy uh, who gave us a great review called I Laughed and Cried, I Learned a Lot. I think P-Town boy, you sound... Maybe like a nine and a half. He sounds like a good looking guy. Yeah, I really think that you're probably a hottie P-Town boy. Five out of five stars. Yeah. It definitely correlates with the attractiveness. For sure. We also have another review. It's by um, myself. And it says, I can't wait to see what the country is next week. What a great and informational podcast. Well, they should tune in next week because our country next week is... Guatemala! Guatemala. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of The World As We Know It. So from both of us, au revoir. Au revoir.